This is, I don't know if I showed you this, but I don't know how well this is going to turn. So this is my kind of mosaic wall of history. But if I look here, this is my Musselboro wall. So right here is the famous match of 1870. So if you like right there yep. is yep. Willie Park Sr. basically pissed off. And in the window is uh, old Tom Morris with his pipe refusing to come out. Yes. And then we move it here. This is a map of Musabra. I went back when it was eight eight holes, not nine. And right, then yeah. up there is the evening at Musabra Links by Charles, Charles Lees. Charles Lees. That's right, because the other one is over here on that wall. I had had the original in my in my studio here for the original original, like the painting. Yeah. yeah. Oh dear. Which was fantastic, actually. And, and then I have John Smart's work over here that I got from uh, Archie Baird. Which is that? Uh, that's John oh, that's Smart's work. Part. Yep. Is that Pandy? That is Pandy. Right. Again, yes, I've, I've seen the original, which is nice. But you had it in your house. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How'd that happen? In, in 2018, I, uh, I set up, a, I curated a... Uh, show an exhibition in in Musselboro in fact in there's a little museum in Musselboro and and I had some amazing stuff I mean just wonderful stuff uh, it was I had the I had the second silver club from the honorable company um, I had Whoa. the Charles Leeds on the wall I had some previously unknown images of the Carricks and the Duns in ambrotyped. We had an open championship medal. We had oh, there's some some great stuff. Unbelievable. It was really nice. Um, and one of those was the Charles Lees, and that came by accident. We were going to put a print up um, and and see what that you know uh, just because it was it was an interesting image of Musselboro uh, and. Just about a month before, maybe two months before, uh, the Charles Lees came up for sale at Bonhams. And for some unknown reason, it didn't sell. I mean, really? People, yeah, well, the histories all say that the original was lost. Right. It wasn't. It was in America. We know where it was. Um and it then came back through descendants of the family to be sold. Um, so there it was. There was the original. And we know it was the original because it, it, had, it had various figures. Um, uh, there's a word for it, pentimenti, um, that bleed through the, the top level of paint, where, where things had been painted out, basically. Some of those... Some of those figures actually, well, one of those figures particularly, actually is a pose that Lee's used in the golfers. Wow. So it's the man standing back looking shocked. So, so, and, and the owner rang me up, he's a collector that I know, um, another collector of, of, of park stuff. You probably know him too. Um, but he, he phoned me up and said, I've got this from Bonhams. Uh, I bought it through through someone else, and here we are. And 
Um, but I'm in the States. Do you want to look after it for me? Mm. And I, and he said, I'd be happy if it was, if it was hung so long as we can sort out insurance, uh, if it was hung in the exhibition. So I did a lot of rushing around. Uh, I can imagine, right? Trying to check, check that the insurance was okay and um, the air conditioning worked and that it was humidity controlled and all that stuff. Uh, and eventually uh, we, we got it on the wall. And it, wow. It stayed there and was a big draw, actually. People wanted to come and see that picture. I mean, you must have been enamored by it, right? No, it's it absolutely fascinating. And I mean, with all these things, you you look at the image and you think, yeah, that's a great painting, and and it sort of stand, it works in its own terms. But then you look at the detail, and there's all sorts of details that are interesting in it, such as um, I think the date of it is the is 1859, but there are feathery balls being used. Oh, really? If you look closely, they are. I'm pretty sure they're featheries. They're not. They're not gutties, anyway. Um, and that ties in with something that we found from the Second Silver Club, which was a ball. One of the balls there, uh, which was the, the last feather, because on the Silver Club, the balls attached are replicas of the champion's ball. Yeah, of the champion's ball with their name uh, attached. And on the Silver Club, there was one, it was one by the Earl of Stair, and that was the Dalrymple family, I think. And it was in 1865. It was still a feathery ball, which means that they were using featheries as late as that. Um, and, and so that sort of tied in with, you know, and it sort of sort of makes sense that if you've if you've been a, a feathery ball player, yeah, absolutely. You're just holding on to the technology you love. That's fine, but actually, I'll just stick with the old the old ones because I know how they fly. I know what they do. I can control them better, and the sound is better. You know. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if you think of it way more modern, let's go another forty years. Um, if you look at the production of even hickory shafted clubs. Yeah. you can find long nose putters into the 1900s, yeah. you know, because you had all these holdovers from the 1880s. And I've been using a putter like this for the last 20 years. This is yeah. what I putt with. Right. And this feels good. And so why would I stop? Yeah. No, that's right. I'm trying to think what else I have of interest in this office. No, it's, you have the, the, um, that nice image that I hope to use in the book, actually. Yeah, was, right. Yeah, Willie Park. Absolutely. And and what I can't see from the photo you told you sent me is what the inscription says precisely. And that's interesting. Let's see. I'll tell you exactly. Let me read it real quick. That would be great. So it says, William Park Sr., yeah. uh, champion golfer, and then it has the four years he won it. And then it says, under that is inscribed, I'll send you a close-up of it, uh, J-A-T-B-P-I-X-T. P-I, okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so it's funny, I got this this piece from a collector, and, you know, obviously I want it because I had, I love the whole story of Musabra, and Mm. I, I ended up purchasing it 
probably, I, I can't remember if I did the research before or after, but I said, you know, who's responsible for the piece? And he didn't know. And I just, I love to research. So I just kind of dug into it. And yeah, obviously, yeah. John A.T. Bonner. Do you know John Bonner? I read a little bit about it, but it was probably f- seven years ago. Well, the interesting thing about Bonner is that, well, firstly, his family is really interesting. And there's a, there's a chapter in the book that deals with um, painters and sculptors. He came from Musselburgh. Really? So he lived in Musselburgh. Not only did he live in Musselburgh, but he lived in Mill Hill in the same street as Willie Park. No way. So, so they were neighbours. In fact, John Bonner lived opposite, pretty much opposite the McEwans. Wow. So, you know, this is really... All tied in. Yes. Yeah. All tied uh, in. His family, it, it's probably fair to say that John was the least talented of the of the Bonner artists but his family had been very early um, painted ceiling painters you know these decorated ceilings in the medieval times yeah in in Edinburgh and had moved out and his his brother I think anyway there's a whole I've got a load of research on it um, and the family were uh, photogravures so they were early into photogravure which yeah. is what you what i have correct yeah so it, it would have been easy for for the family to produce that how, do you know how the, they were produced so you, it's it's like an etching technique uh, but it's based on a photograph i just i i look at it constantly it's just so beautiful it's correct which is which is what's unique about that image yeah well and the other thing i love about that image and i I think i expressed this to you before but if you compare it to the painting that hangs in the rna clubhouse it is identical other than the fact that in the clubhouse painting he's wearing a hat but like all the expression the whiskers just everything from this image is identical to that of that in the RA. So I think it was the sitting for that painting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt of that. It happens that when it was commissioned, Willie Park Jr. commissioned it. So so he, he wanted a painting of his dad. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. The one in the, the one in the RNA yeah. was owned by was given to the RNA by Irene and Eva, who were Willie Jr.'s daughters. Really? My great, no, they wouldn't. Uh, they would be first cousins once removed. Anyway, yeah, and it, yeah, his his daughter, Willie's daughters, because they always had the original painting. I mean, it's a big painting, and they, it's massive, they, right? Yeah, big house anymore, and so they gave it to the the RNA, and there was a lot of debate about whether the RNA wanted to accept it or not. So there are minutes. It's the, the, the St. Andrews Musselburgh thing all over yeah. again, right? You want this guy from Musselburgh? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're on the same page on that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I try not to be too partisan about about It's about historical accuracy. Anyway, uh, so they, they gave it to them, and that was all good, and it now sits, sits there. And, in fact, I've recently approached the RNA um, do you know Angela Howe? I I don't know her. I know of her. Let's go that That's way. True. Yeah. 
who's very good and has done a, done a lot and is very accessible. Anyway, I've approached her to suggest that perhaps next year um, Willie might find a place in the big room uh, just for the, the 150th year. 100%. You know, it would be nice because he's on the back stairs at the moment. I've looked everywhere. I mean, everywhere to find another one, to find a twin, and I have yet to find it. I've I've never seen one. Yeah, I mean, I think I've, it's sad because there had to have been multiple copies made. I assume. I would imagine so. Yeah, I, there were of the Lees. Yeah, there were there were prints made of the Lees at the time. Right. In fact, in fact, I mean, there are interesting stories about the Lees as well because um, I did a, a lot of research on that. There are many ver- many different versions. So the, initially it went to Canada. It was bought by a... Do you want to bore on about this stuff? Or do you want oh, we to can talk? start. Yeah, we can start because we will go forever. That's all right. <laughs> Some, sometime we can do this. <laughs> part two, part three, wherever we end up. I could take out of my life everything except... My experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to Talking Golf History. I hope you didn't mind our slightly unusual cold open. But I found that pre-interview discussion too fascinating to delete. If you know much about me, you know that I'm a big lover of golf antiquities and the art of the game. So please forgive me if it came off a bit awkward. Today on our show, we are diving into the history and legacy of our first Open champion and the golfing hub he was raised in and around. What fascinates me is that both the legacy of Willie Park and his honorable town of Musabra have seemingly lost their historical luster. Today, the great-grandson of Willie Park Sr. joins us on the show to bring both the Parks and Musabra back into the spotlight. Mungo is formerly a golf clubhouse architect and is now an accomplished golf historian with a new book about the golf history of Musabra on the way. Please welcome our guest, Mungo Park, to the show. Mungo Park, welcome to Talking Golf History. Good to be here. Before we start at the beginning, can you share a little bit about yourself and your connection with the first major championship winner? Yeah, okay. The Park family has a has a, a curious poverty of imagination when it comes to first names. So so, <laughs> so just to get this straight. Wait, wait, wait. So you didn't win the Open in the uh, 1880s? No, 1874, but I didn't. That's right, 1874, <laughs> you're right. No, Willie Park Sr. was my great-grandfather. That is my grandfather's father. So is that, that's pretty simple. <clears throat> Where it gets slightly more complex is that Willie Park Sr. had a brother called Mungo and he also had two sons, one called Mungo and confusingly another called Willie Park. So there are, there are two, two sets of, there's a Willie Park and a Mungo in each generation. 
But Willie Park Sr. was my great-grandfather. That's amazing. Yeah, there's lots of mungos, aren't there? There are at least are there three um, mungos over those generations. There, there are four mungos. Um, there's Mungo Park Senior who won the Open in 1874. There's Mungo Park Junior, who my grandfather, who won the first Open in Argentina. Mm-hmm. So he won the first, what's called El Abierto. And my uncle was also a mungo. Uh, my uncle was Sheila Baird's father. Okay. So Archie Baird. Archie, yeah. Yeah. For those that know. And then there's me. So I'm I'm MP4. MP4. I like that. MP4. Uh, you, you follow an unbelievable line of parks who were golfers, club makers, inventors, authors, golf professionals, and golf course architects. How did you follow in that kind of family business? Well, I suppose the, the, the straight answer is I didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I, came, I came back to it in a slight, from a slightly different angle. My father and, and his brother, Mungo, were both medical practitioners. So they moved south, uh, which is why I don't sound like a Scotsman. And we were born down in England. And I then studied after various other um, slightly less less steady occupations. I, I went back and studied architecture at Edinburgh, came down um, and we won a competition uh, with colleagues and set up a practice uh, just outside London. And we then won another competition for the design of the clubhouse at the Oxfordshire. Um, and at the end of that, came a big, big crash, a big economic crash. Um, We had kids by then and wanted to move out of London anyway. So we took the decision and moved down to Gloucestershire, which is where I'm speaking from, you know, from now. Um, So when I moved down here, again, it was fairly, fairly lean times. It was 1990 and, and the architectural profession was sort of dropping off the edge about then. Uh, but I had a bit of work, and I had I I did I taught at the Birmingham School of Architecture for many years. So so you know we made things work, and that was all good. Um, and we'd always done since we won the competition, we'd marketed ourselves. We'd we'd cynically clapped the the park name together with. Did you use uh, the letterhead too, and just yeah. add a uh, clubhouse architecture? No, we didn't use the frilly. frilly <laughs> I have a piece of that somewhere. <laughs> Tempting, but we didn't. <laughs> and we had a slightly more modern modern font than that. At the time, a number of clubs, This there was a, a report called The Demand for Golf, which said that Britain was way underprovided with golf clubs. As it turned out, it wasn't. And a lot of them went, went bust after that. Uh, but there was a lot of refurbishment work. And, and so we... we started to do we did about two or three clubhouses a year and have done ever since so um i'm now i am now officially retired i'm pleased to say more time for the golf course but we yeah i mean that's continued in fact we we did we won another competition for the um refurbishment of royal liverpool and that was nice and then it was handed over to a local local practice to implement 
So you're you're retired from the uh, clubhouse architecture business. Uh, yeah. Your family's won seven open championships. I have to assume like you're just a level below that talent level in golf. Yeah, you have to assume that. <laughs> it's all you've got. It's true. <laughs> no, no, I'm. Sadly, the gene pool ran out the generation before me. You know, it, the barrel was dry when it got to me. <laughs> so, so I play enjoyable golf on, on Cleve Hill. I have just recently joined Cleve Hill Golf. golf. Oh, you have. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic course. I mean, it, it's so underrated. And it, it's basically, it was nearly died off, I understand, right? It did, yeah, yeah, and I was I was involved. I I worked on one of the teams bidding for it. Uh, we weren't successful, but I'm very pleased with with what's happening up there. It's it's fantastic. So so I've joined. I've put my money where my mouth was. Oh, that's so fantastic. That's great. I have to come see it one of these days. It looks beautiful. Yeah, no, it is. You really should. Um, it's it's reputedly well. I'm doing some history on it, of course, and it was it was certainly visited by Tom Morris and possibly possibly laid out by him. I mean, I think it was more likely to have been laid out by members and then Tom came along. Refurbish, sure. Refurbish, well, did some work or or had a visit anyway. And interestingly, from a Musselboro point of view, uh, the guy that did actually did the work and probably built most of the greens that are present at the moment was David Brown. Who came oh, wow, yeah, open champion. <laughs> Wow, this, full circle. All the time is that, you know, you look look at the sort of what happened first and there may be a headline about Tom Morris. Shortly after that, there's probably a muscle room man in there doing work. So, yeah. So whether it's Gibson at Westwood Ho, Paxton at Eastbourne, um, the Browns, at Malvern and then Painswick and then Cleve, you know, they're all around that time and they're all busily working and there are reasons for that. Yeah. How do I ask this? Have you been cognizant of the park name in regards to its importance to the history of golf from the beginning? Like, was that interwoven in your kind of family history? Yeah, my, my dad was a scratch golfer. So there's always been golf in the family so we know you know we always knew knew that we were that my grandfather was i mean i remember my just remember my grandfather from when i was a, a small kid and we would go up to that's where we had our holidays was we go back to scotland for the holidays so i remember walking over muscle links with with grandfather mungo and he intimated that he'd been fairly busy that as a golfer, uh, but I had no idea, you know, what what his status was. So he was really just just nonchalant about it. He he was a very quiet, nice old guy. Yeah, um, he certainly didn't shout about his famous brother or himself or you know he's yeah he's he was just. He was just enjoying being back in Musselburgh, smoking his pipe and walking on the walking on the links with the grandchildren. Yeah, <laughs> grandchildren. Yeah. yeah. Did it, yeah. when you walked with him? Did I mean I'm I'm just curious. Did people recognize him as 
Open yeah. Championship winner? Did you? I mean, it, might, it was years ago, obviously. If you remember yeah, that or not, this was this was the fifties. Yeah, sort of late fifties. I was born in fifty one, so this would be sort of, oh, I suppose fifty eight, fifty seven. No, actually, it must have been. I must have been younger than that because he died around fifty seven. So. Yeah, no, it's 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 an for me. It's an early memory. So you know, right? Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. I get that. Hundred percent. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, the historical narrative on the Park family, in my opinion, is extremely biased towards the Morris family, mostly because it's out of St. Andrews. The Park family and their story has always been from the perspective of St. Andrews. That is to say that the Parks have always seemed to play the foe in the retelling of golf history. As a big fan of the Parks and the Musselboro legacy, it could be frustrating, at least for me, I'm sure for you. Uh, two questions. Do you agree with my assessment of that historical bias? And as a park yourself, how do you feel about your family's narrative as it's told today? Yeah. It, it's, it's sometimes irritating. And, and, and to, for the record, I don't think we're not blaming anybody. I just think that there's such a big flashlight on St. Andrews that it kind of steals the oxygen from the air of Musabra yeah. and its accomplishments. It, it does. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I don't think anyone would, would argue with that. I mean, yeah, I pick it up. I understand, uh, you know, I understand what's going on and, um, and sometimes it, it marginalizes Musselboro. I, I think I probably care more about Musselboro than I do about the family because, you know, we know who we are and it's fine. Sure. Um, uh, but, it's the historical inaccuracy that that I think needs to be addressed, uh, and it is just it, it's it's a wrong portrayal of history to say that uh, that Musselboro was always you know a, a leftover in the Gulf story, and that St Andrews was always the the best. Hundred percent, and and that's been I mean that that's been in. In articles in Golf Illustrated, you can find many people saying that around the 20s and the 30s, but that's sort of been written out and and forgotten about. Uh, and people were saying at the time, you know, in the older days, Musselboro was about three decades ahead of St Andrews in its development. And I th- I think the reason for that, and and I think you know, if if you say there's a bias to, towards the Morrises, the Morrises are the icons of, of yeah Montana. yeah and it's not besmirching the morris family either at all it's really just saying yeah that, that the air is being taken out of the room for and and i think it's as true as for muscle is for perth or carnoustie or all those other places that have great history you know you can you can reel them off perth donor money north barrack yeah north barrack although north barrack is interesting because because I think where this came from, the, the, the partisan positions of, of St. Andrews and Musselboro, I think are, are a bit artificial. And I think they were created. And I think, I think it was in the 1840s. I think it was a very, very good self-promotion job done by Hugh Lyon Playfair. Saw that golf was, was St. Andrews' unique selling point. And could transform the town and and he was right and it did and there's no no doubt that 
St. Andrews is the most glorious place. It really is. It 100%. Uh, But it it is inaccurate to say that it was the start of golf because it wasn't. You know, and we we know that golf started in Leith, and well, certainly club golf started in Leith. Uh, Leith and Brunsfield were certainly in popular occupation. They were ahead of Musselburgh, and Musselburgh gathered them all together when they were forced out by increasing congestion of the city. And so Musselburgh became this extraordinarily energetic place into which most of the most important clubs in Scotland, with the exception of St. Andrews and North Berwick, arrived. Yeah, converged. It's, it's fascinating. It really is. Their infrastructure, which was club makers, ball makers, caddies, golfers, there was already a sort of hospitality sector there because it had been a garrison town anyway. So they were well geared up. And it had also been a horse racing center. And that, again, brings with it the same class of people, which were essentially patrician. So the wealthy golfers in sort of late 18th century, early 19th, uh, arrived, certainly in in Musselburgh, they arrived um, in 1816 and built the race stand, which became a sort of pro tem clubhouse for many of the people moving out from, from Edinburgh. So... Musselburgh had it all going, and it had it all going well before St. Andrews had it all going. You know, they, they stole a march. Basically, they were in the right place at the right time to, to catch that huge catchment of golfers, which then received a further shot in the arm by the arrival of the gutty ball. And that just popularized it to a, an extent that Musselburgh couldn't actually cope with eventually absolutely yeah overcrowding of the links 100 percent. that that led to its it's basically an evacuation of golf of of the second generation of golfers which meant that many of the first golfers that you find around the world are also from musselburgh (laughs) so you know it's it's one of these things the right place at the right time and then stuff happens I did a uh, Golf from the Fringe episode where I research, uh, write, and narrate a story. And I did a story on, I believe I called it the Stolen Major, about the uh, events of 1892 and how uh, right. Musselboro was supposed to hold the Open and they took it seemingly overnight. I think it was, if I'm, re- I'm probably going to remember this wrong, I think they gave the golf world, I think it was less than 100 days notice that they were moving it to Muirfield. And in that story, I, I, I tell multiple stories. I tell the story of the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers at Leith Links creating the rules of golf and how actually there was a real potential uh, in that first tournament, which was an open tournament, that that tournament for, you know, the, the, goal, uh, for the Silver Club could have become the Open Championship. But after, I think after the first year or second year, it became, you know, you had to be a member of the Honorable Company or you had to be a, uh, a player at Leith Links, and it really closed down that open competition. But it was, yeah. you know, 100 years before the open, they had a chance to have this open event that would have brought in all these amazing golfers. So there's, there's all these converging events that happen prior to 1892 where 
you know, the home of golf or, you know, the caretakers of the game very well could have been the honorable company of Edinburgh golfers. Like it was within their grasp as the writers of the rules to this yeah. hub of golf being Musabra in the convergent of, you know, the five, five of the greatest clubs in Scotland outside of St. Andrews, of course. And it's fascinating history, isn't it? It's just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, and not enough has been written about it. Well, I'm done. you're changing that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've just I've just finished the text for 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 the book. Yeah, so so I'm. I'm <laughs> you're in the publishing process. Where are you in that, Mongo? I know I'm getting into this later, but I'm too excited. Yeah, no, I mean it's been fascinating actually, and uh, I've I've learned so much about history outside golf as well as inside, and that's it. You know, it's been it's a really interesting story because Musselburgh, before the income of all the all the clubs from from Edinburgh, uh, was a was an interesting place in itself, and had had the seeds into which you could plant the game of golf. Yeah, when it happened, you know, it really took off. Uh, and I do think I do think it's interesting the difference between St Andrews and Musselburgh, and and I mean I think one of the you, you talked earlier about the bias towards the Morrises and, and to St. Andrews, just to sort of get back onto that. Um, I think it's, I think it was to do with the, the promotion of St. Andrews for, for the benefit of the town. Sure. And I think that was really successful and, and did well. But I also think that the character of the game in the two places was different, particularly after 1848. So I think after 1848, there were still patrician clubs. And, and you're referring to the 1848 being the gutty, the entrance of the yeah, gutty? When it came in, it, it popularized and dem- democratized the game, um, and it became some, you know, a much wider game for the growing middle classes. You know, and they were, because of the Industrial Revolution, all, all that. Um, I, think, I think there were still aristocratic clubs that, and Predominantly at the time, that would have been St Andrews and North Berwick, uh, and and those two St Andrews. And I, I mean, North Berwick was was sort of a satellite St Andrews, quote unquote, kind of gentleman golfers. Yes, and fairly exclusive. I think there were only fifty members, and it was set up by Sir David Baird, and most of them were landowners or wealthy merchants yeah. or men of uh, leisure. It was it was us rather than them, you know. Whereas I think I think Musselburgh was full of them. <laughs> it was those those I've seen it written those damn miners. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, that was that was the character. I mean, those damn miners actually contributed most of the wealth to the people who wished to exclude. Right. Right. You know, I mean, Musselburgh was on the edge of the the Midlothian coal belt. And it was, at that time, being exploited to a huge extent. And, and that had benefit for golf um, indirectly because it brought wealth to a, a larger middle class and to industrialists and they became golfers. And, you know, but it was there. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't ignore it. And, in fact, I think Bernard Darwin wrote a piece about um, arrival at Musselburgh being surrounded by 
a fairly unprepossessing landscape. I mean, it's gorgeous now. Yeah. If you come from, from East Lothian. Absolutely. It's wonderful. But, but at the time, there were, you know, it was an industrial center. And there were lots of industrial features about it. There were at West Pans, there were chimneys, there was, there was a refinery. Uh, I mean, the links you can make to all sorts of interesting early industrial history is, is fascinating. I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, you know, what's also fascinating with that, Mongo, is it seems that the, the character of the player at Masabra, the working class golfer, that whether true or not, and maybe you can jump into this, but those attributes seem to be thrown then on the shoulders of their greatest champion, Willie Park Sr., right? He, yeah. To me, I mean, I think he reads like this is a working class golfer who's, you know, trying to challenge the establishment. And, and he very much does that, uh, literally challenge. But what do you think? I don't think he was, I mean, there is this, thing about challenging the establishment. I, I don't read it that way. I don't think the challenge, it, it was his motivation. That's what I mean. It's the narrative that we read, right? But I, I think he was, yeah, I think he saw an opportunity. I mean, looking back at the census details, in, in 1841, when they carried out the first census, he was eight. So he was eight and he was living in Cottage Lane. In 1851, he was living on the edge. He was living at Linkfield, and he was um, described as an agricultural labourer. He was 15 um, in 1848 when the gutty came in. So, you know, absolutely at the age when enthusiasm could take off. And we know they were playing on the links across the road, and we know that he fairly quickly became an adept golfer with some fairly rudimentary instruments, basically a, you know, a stick and a root, and that he was beating, beating golfers with that. So I think he, he got into it so early, as did his brothers. I mean, there were, there were three other brothers who were good golfers as well, and they all got into it, clearly. And if you're in any, any sort of uh, interest or pastime, you, once you're in it in depth, you just understand it like breathing. And so for him not to make a challenge, well, why not? You know, sure. Um, from a patrician point of view, from the point of view of an aristocrat, it was a great impudence. You know, you, you, <laughs> this chap coming up from Musselburn. You know. Yeah. Although, to be fair, that, that same aristocrat, while he may be uh, rebuffed by it, it was probably sponsoring that challenge. On that behalf of Willie Park, right? Yeah, no. This, I mean, it, it's a much more complex picture. It's yeah, not, you know, it's not, a, it's not a class war issue. No, <laughs> right? But, but I think, I think Willie was an opportunist. I think he was an enthusiast for golf. He loved the game. I'm not sure where he learnt how to make clubs, which is still an interesting source of research for me. Um, because the McEwans weren't there. He couldn't have learned from them. They hadn't arrived yet. Ballantyne was there. He was the club maker to the Honourable Company at Leith, um, and he'd moved out. Uh, so it could have, been, could have been him. But, you know, once he was in that world, it became his world. And so for him not to make a challenge would have been foolish. He, he knew that he could match most of the people in Musselburgh, 
including the Duns, who were there. And so he saw St. Andrews as the next great opportunity. And it was an opportunity, it was a financial opportunity, clearly, for his backers, and therefore for him. But you know, it was it was a perfectly reasonable thing to issue a challenge. And whether he was put up to it by his ba- his backers, I think Saddle of Glen Saddle was one of his main main backers, or whether it was his own initiative, he was happy to do with it. Yeah, and and he wasn't the first to be fair. I mean, the the Duns are are Duns are famed for their matches against Morrison Robertson, so that clearly predate uh, your great grandfather. I think that's one of the interesting things is that one of the sort of byproducts of this Andreocentric view that the St Andrews based view of history is that those challenges, the challenges that Willie Park made to Tom or to Alan first, but are the start of competitive golf. It clearly wasn't the case. Right. Um, Alan Robertson is mentioned as the unbeatable Alan Robertson and the first golf professional. Um, both statements clearly rubbish. You know, they're just not, not yeah. the case. We, because in St. Andrews, the Piries were there before before Alan Robertson. So, you know, and they were making a living out of playing golf. I mean, okay, I understand that they were also shepherds, but but most of their living, I think, was from caddying and playing golf. So, you know, it's it's a myth making. Sure. And it and it comes from the same self-promotional drive originally. It comes uh, it comes from the vacuum. <laughs> yeah. But but I think there is a danger that it that it blots out all the other interesting interesting histories up and down the coast east coast of Scotland. And they are interesting, you know, they're fascinating stories in social history that exist at little coastal places up and down Coast and and you know they deserve to be told too. So going back to Willie Park Senior, t- tell us what you know about your great grandfather. Uh, do you know what kind of man he was? What drove him? You know how did he make his way into becoming a golfer, club maker, and champion? Do we know? Well, I have to piece together the bits of research that I've found out. Where well, we know we know his father was a, a laborer, a farm laborer. Uh, in St. Clement's Wells, which is just up from Musselburgh, um, just above it. It's only only a few miles away. And that James Park Sr. Uh, moved the family down for some reason to Cottage Lane, which, and again, I, I never knew where Cottage Lane was um, until I started doing a little more in-depth research. It's now called Park Lane. So, oh, is that right? Yeah. And it, it's tucked in behind Pinky House. So it's to the south of Pinky. And on one of the early maps, it's shown as Cottage Lane. And it was just next door to the barracks, where the barracks were. And and so I've, I've found out where he moved to first, but fairly quickly, uh, within 10 years, certainly, they they had moved from Cottage Lane to Linkfield, which was on the edge of the links. I don't know what sort of guy he was. I mean, there are descriptions. So another of Musselburgh's sons was A.H. Dolman, who wrote about the family quite well um, from direct interview with Willie Senior. And that's an interesting piece. How does he describe him? He says he, he's, uh, that he was a, a tall, uh, at that time, an old man, quite 
quiet. You may not think it, but we tend not to be great talkers. <laughs> uh, and he, he was a, a quiet, fairly well-reserved guy, but with a strength of character that that made him a fearsome opponent on the golf course. And he and you know the the reports are there. He was he was a he frightened people with his long driving. You know that that classic quote. Um, and for God's sake, give me a half. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I it's love a, that. It's a great, great line. Sort of picture of what was going on, and what's nice about it is, is I think particularly, particularly that for God's sake, give me a half, is, is the sort of desperation of his opponent, who I think was George Morris. Or? It was, yeah, it was Tom's brother, right, who took up the oh. challenge to, uh, right. yeah, the original challenge, and then just got beaten thoroughly just by got- Willie Willie Park. And, and and what's what's nice about it is that it's the sort of thing we all say, you know. Oh, yeah, it. yeah. It humanizes them, right? I mean, I think we Sorry? we ha- I said it very much humanizes them. Uh, these these deities, almost these golfing deities that we look back on as you know the pillars of golf, and it's you know it's a perfect line because you're right. We we all would have said it. That's right, and and I don't think they're great gladiators gladiators opposed from the start you know i think they're just guys doing what they do and and there are instances of tom morris playing with bob ferguson against other people you know they'd make up matches as their backers or they chose but don't you think don't you think that golf history as we read it is it tends to be written like the man in the white hat and the man in the black hat. Like here's the hero and here is the villain. Right. I, I mean, that's how maybe, yeah. maybe I read too much into it, but I, I read these stories and it's just like, okay, this one's clearly written from the St. Andrew's perspective. And, you know, old Tom Morris is the hero of this story. And this, this, you know, almost the way it's painted sometimes. Uh, and again, history doesn't always paint with, uh, with great colors, but it's painted as, you know, Willie Park, this upstart challenger, uh, braggart almost, which doesn't seem to be the case at all. Uh, the bad guy in this story comes in to challenge, you know, the, the saintliness, if you will, of the St. Andrews golfer as old Tom Morris, right? Yeah. It's, just, it's crazy, right? Because they, I mean, they probably liked each other, you know? There, there seems to be no ill will between the men. No. I think that's right. I don't think there was ill will between them. Um, I think there was possibly a difference in education. I think Willie Senior was not a well-educated man. I think Tom Morris was. And so, you know, they might not have been best buddies because their level of understanding of things or their values may have differed. But that doesn't mean they didn't respect each other and quite and, and like to play against each other. Well, they definitely made each other better. Right, there's zero doubt about that. Yeah, and that you know there was a mutual respect. I don't have any doubt about that. And and yeah, I I mean the classic one recently was, which again, I honestly don't mind about much personally, except that it's it's a miscasting of history. But that there was a film recently. I'm sure you know it. And and there's a scene in where the parks are portrayed as uh, 
somewhere between Laurel and Hardy and the Sopranos. Yeah, so right. Part part buffoon, part gangster. That's just rubbish. Yeah, uh, that, it's so inaccurate. And and anyway, there there wasn't a fight in Chan's bunker, as far as we know. No report exists to say that. And yet, that's an easy way to portray a good piece of narrative in in what was what was a fictional film with some uh, authentic truths yeah i mean but that's that's where that's that's what we get tied into right is history gets misrepresented and then it becomes you know truth. a truth at least not the truth if that makes sense no i think i think that's right i think people will have gone away from that film thinking that muscle musclebro was a rough place that turned up rough golfers who were grossly unfair to the good St. Andrews folk who were. <laughs> well, they always say history is written by the victors, right? And I mean, there's zero doubt that St. Andrews won the yeah. war of golf, right? I mean, St. Andrews is every person in the world knows that the story of St. Andrews or knows of St. Andrews. And unfortunately, far too few know the story of Musselburgh. But I have to say that there are a huge number of, of, and you and I know them, um, of people in St. Andrews who know this to be the case. Yeah. So, you know, Roger McStravick un- understands at, in depth how Musselboro fits into oh, yeah. the off-season time. And, and David Hamilton, similarly, is a yeah. you know, great proponent of, um, of an understanding of Leith's position and Edinburgh golfers and where all that came from. And so a lot of, and, and in fact, David Mal- Malcolm, when he wrote the Colossus of golf uh, on Tom Morris, there's a very good chapter on Willie Park. Um, and it, and it's, you know, it's straightforward and it tells the story as it ought to be told. Right. And, right. And that's good history. Yeah. I guess I should state this. I mean, I think it's important to know that this isn't the, modern day golf historian, you know, keeping that narrative going. It's they're trying to correct it, but I think it's in mainstream golfers view, if they were to read, you know, much about Willie Park or even Willie Park Jr. or Mungo or Musabra, it just seems to be that history for a hundred years or more has been, you know, sullied a little bit towards the St. Andrews perspective. And now we have folks like Roger McStravick and yourself that are helped setting the story straight. Well, I hope so. I think that's right. I think it's time there was a re- rebalancing of the history, mostly because it's, it's more fun that way. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's interesting. You know. These two rival towns going at it. I mean, yeah, I, I, I had the statistic at one point, but if you look at the open championship, it was won by, a gentleman from St. Andrews, I should say a professional, because back then I would have been slapped for calling a professional a gentleman. But uh, in modern terms, we'll say the gentleman from St. Andrews or the gentleman f- from Musabra. I mean, I, I, I'm going to get this wrong. Trust me, someone will fact check me. But it was something like for the first 30 years of the Open, 28 of them were won by gentlemen from St. Andrews or Musabra. It's really right. fascinating. That's, that's the that's two hubs, right. two hubs of golf. Yeah, and if you look at if you look at, and I don't very much. I'm, I'm not 
that interested in um, the statistics of whether Willie won more than Tom. But sure. If you look at it, I think I think generally people would say Willie came off just about better. Yeah. But you know they were hand in hand. But then Willie was a slightly younger man, so do true. You, do you fact that in hundred percent. It could go either way, but in a way, that's for me not very interesting. Um, it, it doesn't float my boat, and I think the same with with Alan Robertson, um, who we spoke about a minute ago. The the sort of unbeatable thing, Willie issued the challenge to Alan Robertson. I found an interesting fact, which is that in the press, Willie Park was already being called the champion golfer of Scotland. Oh, really? In July, 1860. Wow. How about that? Yeah. That's before the open. He's in, you know, someone's in print recording him as the champion golfer of Scotland. So whether that was a sort of a promotional thing from Edinburgh. Sure. You know, same sort of thing. I don't know, but uh, I was interested to see that. But he he issued the challenge to Alan, um, and quite honestly, he Alan Robertson would have been nuts to accept it because because by that time Willie was twenty, Alan Robertson was thirty eight. I mean, you know, if the train's coming down the track, you jump off the track, <laughs> right? And it would have been, and I'm sure his backers would have made that point. Yeah, I'm sure it's kind of like the uh, the heavyweight boxer not taking up the upstart to give him a chance, right? Because you could, you know, tarnish your legacy. Yeah, and and if at the same time the same people who are backing you are also promoting the town from which you come, um, not only do you lose money, you also lose face. Yeah, absolutely. They send poor George to defend the honor out there, George Morris. <laughs> yeah. Which doesn't yes, go well. <laughs> For God's sake, give uh, us a half. That that was the short straw. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see how good this Willie Park gentleman is. George, can you go play him this weekend? <laughs> a lot of pushing from the back. <laughs> so Alan refuses to play Willie Park, and George goes to play him. George gets slaughtered and then old tom morris takes up the the challenge uh to i guess defend his brother and he gets beaten too by willie park that first match and i and if i remember right rather soundly yeah i think i think so i can't remember what what the score was but yeah i think it was i think it was a substantial win i think i think willie was on fire that you know at that around that time yeah he was he was a huge driver of the ball in in those terms and in those days, and he was also a good putter. That's I mean, a dangerous combo. Well, that's right. What else do you need? <laughs> Bunker play. Well, he didn't get in. You know, he he managed to avoid them pretty much. Uh, I mean, it, he didn't pass that on. Willie Junior was slightly different. He, Willie Junior was a, a fantastic putter. But he could be quite wayward on his driving. I mean, he, drive, he drove a long way, but they could be a bit wild sometimes. I've inherited that, actually. 
<laughs> so it passes on the generation. So yeah. Best, best feature of my game. <laughs> the best feature of my game is I'm wayward off the tee. I don't think I've ever heard that one put that way. Um, how, do, how do these challenge matches, uh, the challenge to Alan, accepted by George, accepted by old Tom Morris, how did they change the game? Because they really come at an opportune time, right? We, we mentioned how these challenge matches existed in the day of the feathery. But in the day of the feathery, it was very much a, a game of for the leisure, right? For the for the rich. Once yeah. that ball, once the ball changed in 1848, now you have these amazing challenge matches, which are covered throughout Scotland, I, probably throughout England, in the press of Morris versus Park. How did that help change the game? Well, I think I think you've hit on it there. I think. The change happened, and and again, I think this is probably the subject of some more research, which would be interesting. I think, I think the press was the nature of the press was changing. So these these were not newspapers in in sort of sheet form in very small circulation. These were large multiple broadsheets cranking out, you know, day after after day. And I, I think the challenge matches fed so well into the narrative that a, that a newspaper could put out that it was a sort of, it gathered momentum by itself. So challenge matches, good thing to report. Reports fed public interest. Public interest was keen to see more challenge matches. More challenge matches felt, fed the reports again, you know, and I think this, this built like a like a snowball running running downhill, you know, it just built up a big big momentum, um, which ultimately that, was great for the game of golf. Fantastic! It popularized the game. It it made everyone who had access to a newspaper a spectator into a wonderful spectacle, and you know, I think that's that's how it happened. Um, and it also helped spark that rivalry even more: the Musselboro versus St Andrews, the St Andrews versus Musselboro. Are you a Musselboro man? Or are you a St Andrews man? Who are you going to take on this side? It's it's, that's right. It's are you Manchester City? Or are you Liverpool? Exactly. Yeah, it's it, fantastic. It that same sort of tribalism to it, which plays well into a newspaper, um, whether or not it's real. Right. Right. Fantasticism. <laughs> right. Was, uh, but some of it wasn't. So I've argued in the past, and I'm curious on your thoughts here, that without Willie Park's public challenge matches, his uh, epic mano a mano battles with old Tom Morris, that without them, even with the death of Alan Robertson in 1859, that the Open Championship might not have been created in 1860. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think that these battles produced a question that previously was answered, who is the champion golfer? And in the void, as Alan Robertson passes away tragically early, we have old Tom Morris in St. Andrews. If not for these matches with Park, there would be no question to the public's eye without these challenge matches of who was the champion golfer. So I'm curious on your thoughts. Did these challenge matches by Park challenging Morris help give birth to major championships? Yeah, I think I think they did. Um, I think they fed that popular narrative and, and popular interest. Um, I think I think interestingly, they 
fed that back up to Eglinton who, mm-hmm. and Ogilvy Fairley, uh, who instigated the, the first Open. Um, and, and Eglinton is an interesting guy. I mean, it, 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 he, he ran this medieval tournament. I don't know if you've come across that in, in I can't remember what date it was, but it, he, he, he organized and ran a complete medieval tournament festival. You mean like and with knights and horses? With knights in armor. So he made the armor and you'll, you'll see. Wow. No, I did not know this. Fairly in, in armor as well as Eglinton. And the, you know, the ladies were dressed up in medieval gowns and, um, and there was jousting, you know, there was actual jousting and, and there were men at arms and there was sort of small private army. It was hugely expensive and he was hugely wealthy uh, and, you know, his, and the wealth was derived as so much was from, from mining interests. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Things are all tied up. Yeah. And, and I think, I think this, this sort of combative, right. We must have a, a competition that, that determines once and for, for all who the champion is. Uh, I think it was a popular sounding message at the time. Uh, it's interesting that the Lonsdale belt, which is not dissimilar to the belt that was played for, was also fought for in boxing in 1860. So, you know, that whole, uh, how do we determine a champion? What do we clad him with? We'll get a great fat belt. It'll be, you know, that's the trophy. This is the championship. Um, was It's time had come if you like. But I think it's time to come because of the popular interest that we were talking about, because of the press involvement and the, the challenge matches that had that engendered the, the, the press involvement and, and moved things forward that way. And for once, uh, at least outside of or inside of St. Andrews, there was a question who was the best golfer in the world? Because despite Alan not taking on Park's challenge, it was just a title that not only he picked up, but he wasn't ever going to give up Alan Robertson. <laughs> he was going to be the champion golfer until the end of his days. Yes. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what they thought would happen. Right. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. And it, and it clearly came as something of a surprise when, when Willie won it. Yeah. Uh, the, I, yeah. Everyone the, thought it was going to be old Tom. I mean, old Tom Morris designs the course. Right, he yeah. you know he worked there at the time. Like he was the head professional, uh, tended to the green, knew the course ins and outs. And this young upstart, thirteen and a half months after the death of the great Alan Robertson, wins the first Open. Yeah, uh, it, it it was a disappointment to some. I mean, there is a, there's a letter. Um, someone has it in their collection. I'm not sure who, but from Glennie. You know the the member of Blackheath and St Andrews, where he refers to it and says, you know, it's, it was luck that Willie Park. Wow. Yeah, it's a quite a snippy letter. You know, <laughs> such a shame that our 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 friend Tom didn't achieve what we know to be the case. He is by far the better player. You know, hang on. <laughs> yeah, right. I thought we settled this. Yes, that's right. Well, before we move on from Willie Sr., um, I think for those who are listening at home, 
Uh, he did win four Open Championships. To put Willie Park's four Open Championships in perspective, I'll go over the 10 golfers in the history of the Open that have matched him or have done better. Harry Varden won six Open Championships, more than any other golfer alive. James Braid and J.H. Taylor won five. That's the great triumphant. Old Tom Morris matched Willie with four Open Championships, as did his son, young Tom Morris. Walter Hagen won four, and Peter Thompson won five with Tom Watson, becoming the five men who have won five Open Championships. Bobby Locke won four, and your great-grandfather, Willie Park, won four Open Championships. Now, to put this in better perspective, outside of Tiger Woods' three Open Championships, after the month of August of 2021, there is no current golfer under the age of 50 with more than one Open Championship under their belt. That alone is staggering to me. Then in the last you know 15 years, Padraig Harrington has multiple Open Championships. He is 49 and if memory serves, he turns 50 this month at the end of August. And after that, it'll be just Tiger Woods with his three Open Championships. Everyone else has one under the age of 50. It's remarkable. That's how hard it is to win. Yeah, yeah. You could argue that it wasn't so hard when Willie won his. Yeah, there were eight, right? Uh, eight players. Right. Yeah. yeah. I always tell people they were the eight best golfers in Scotland. They pulled them from all over the Scotland. Yeah, yeah, and Blackheath. And Blackheath, absolutely. G.D. Brown came, came up from Blackheath. Uh, I'm not sh- yeah. That, that, again, is a really in- interesting um, area of research because if you look at the invitation, it's to, to the clubs at, to the following, clubs at the, pro- at the following locations or something, it says something like that. And it says, you know, um, Brunsfield, it says, well, it's been misread, but it's Dirlton. Um, I think that someone says Darleston in one of the histories. Again, it, it's definitely Dirlton because they were around at the time. Um, Musselburgh, uh, but it doesn't say who at Musselburgh. Yeah, it was the courses or the clubs that were going to decide who represented them. Is that your understanding? I think it was, I, I think at the time, uh, well, at the time, Royal Musselburgh was in a period of dormancy. And so I think it was the Honourable Company. And the Honourable Company, effectively, when when they moved there, dominated golf at Musselburgh. And there's a bit of sort of vying for um, seniority between Musselburgh Golf Club and the Honourable Company. But Honourable Company brought with them history and money. Um, and and really, they, they sort of took over the running of it, which yeah. is why when they moved off in 1892 there was a great vacuum um, and it, you know, it, it left it. But arguably Willie was chosen by the honorable company. So played for them as their representative. And, and didn't the club have to vouch for them well, for yeah. their character? And, I think that was, I have no idea. You know, we don't know how that worked. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and how it was set up. And I, I mean, I think on on the eighteen ninety two issue, probably the Open Championship was the honourable companies to take with it. That's how they at least they saw it. Yeah, because they vouched for. Been, yeah, it was one of the subscribers to the to the claret jug. You know, 
and it was the most important club there, it felt. Um, but it, I guess, the, yeah, in 1892, it was there was no like written context of who ran the tournament. So it was like, it's it goes to Musabra. And then yeah, they said, no, we, it's ours. We're, right. yeah. we're taking it down the road a bit. Yeah, that's right. But it's, it's not clear uh, who at Musselboro selected Willie. And it's also not clear um, who there – there are two, two players in there, um, William Steele and Alexander Smith. And I'm not sure we know where they come from. That's interesting. I think, I think they're Brunsfield players. Um, I've had some correspondence with, with the historians there, um, and I think but, – but there is a poem about boasting Billy, which is um, Steele, William Steele, boasting Billy. That's right. Um, uh, but who he was or where he fitted in, I have no idea. That's so crazy. Two out of those eight at the original Open – yeah. My, my, one of my favorite things about those early opens is how much they didn't trust the players. So like when Willie Park wins the first open championship, not only was there not prize money, but he had to put down money to take the belt with them because they didn't trust these drunken professional quote unquote caddies to return this championship belt. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then the second, you know, like he wins it again. I mean, he wins it again. I, I think Morris wins it the second year. He wins it again, I believe, in the third year or the fourth. I, this is where I, I don't have my notes in front of me. But he wins it. He has to put down the deposit, and he wins no money. But in second place, Morris gets a check or gets, yeah, gets paid. <laughs> just, he got the shaft, man. He won the Open four times and only got paid for it twice. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I'm, I'm still waiting for the. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, this year's prize money was uh, about two million or what, two million pounds. Yeah, Mongo, I, I think I, you can you can ask for that now. I think it no, I, using I current that. rates, four million pounds. I think that sounds fair. Blame my great grandfather. <laughs> like, you've got to put a deposit on this belt. We don't trust you to, that you're going to yeah, bring it back because you know we know about you, right? Oh, it's <laughs> so good. Grandfather. What a great place to end part one of this two-part podcast on the legacy of Willie Park Sr. I hope you found these stories as amazing as I do, and as funny. Imagine winning the Open four times, getting paid twice, and having to put down a deposit to take home the championship belt because the powers that be thought you would hock it for cash to get drunk. That barrier between professionals and amateurs would follow the history of our game for another 60 to 70 years. The story of Musabra is one of my all-time favorite golf stories. I mentioned as much, but if you have time to check out episode 15 of this podcast, named The Stolen Major, it fills in some of the blank spots between my conversation with Mungo Park. We will return shortly with part two of the legacy of Willie Park Sr. and dive into the story of his brother and son and how they continued Willie's legacy and built the Park Dynasty, which jumped from open champions and club builders to authors, inventors, and golf course architects. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis. Mm-hmm.